Welcome to the Request 2021 podcast. In the winter of 2021-22, a team of 10 members of scouting, eight from Kent and two from Scotland, will be sailing together on the Bark Europa tour ship from South America to Port Lockroy in Antarctica. The plan is to sail exactly 100 years after two scouts sailed on Shackleton's original quest expedition. I'm Alan Noak and I'm project leader and I'm the person who came up with the whole crazy idea in the first place. Uh, Each of the participants is to carry out an Antarctic research project. So my personal project is to produce a soundscape record of our journey. That's before, during and after Antarctica. The plan is for this podcast to include interviews, scouting historical links, events uh, and research project work that we record along the way. So uh, please join us as we venture to Antarctica and back again on the journey of a lifetime. It promises to be a memorable experience. Well, it's episode 14 now of the Request 2021 podcast, Uh, and it's December 2020, Uh, so it's just coming up to a year now until we sail for Antarctica. Um, Assuming all things get back to normal and we get international travel, uh, we should be booking flights for South America and uh, flying out to South America next December. So um, this month, on the 6th of December... Uh, I'm giving a a talk online uh, and that's all about Shackleton Scouts and the history of Shackleton Scouts Uh, and I'm doing that to raise awareness of the project and to raise some funds for the project Uh, so look out for that Uh, and fundraising wise we're doing pretty well we're just about to smash through the £70,000 barrier uh, as I speak and uh, that will give us another £40,000 to raise by the end of June 2021. So that's our goal, another 40,000 by then. So still a lot of fundraising to go. Uh, We are really grateful. I know myself and the team are ever so grateful for all the kind sponsorship we've received to date. And uh, we're looking for people to run the London uh, half marathon for us uh, to raise some more money uh, next year. Um, got two out of the five spaces filled already so if you're a bit of a long distance runner and you fancy uh, having a go at the London Half Marathon we've got some secured places um, so uh, please uh, get in touch. Well there's two guests on the show this month Uh, we have our Request 2021 interview with Camilla Nicholl the Chief Executive of the UK uh, Antarctic Heritage Trust uh, so look forward to that. And But first we're going to hear from Tom Books. And Tom is the Group Scout Leader of First St Peter's in Thanet in Kent, uh, who has a very interesting story to tell us all about his day job. Uh, so here we go. First St. Peter's, and actually now the GSL at First St. Peter and Thanet as well. 
Oh, right. So you went all the way through scouting and then you went on to become a GSL. Well, somebody asked me if I would be GSL um, last summer. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I eventually said yes, I found out I'd been holding the role for about a month. <laughs> That's a, a very common story in scouting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, and uh, where are you at the moment? Uh, so I'm currently in Japan. Uh, serving with the the US Navy uh, in Yokosuka with their 7th Fleet. Okay. Um, And uh, how long has that been for? So for me, that has been, this is a a nine-month tour of duty uh, where we rotate uh, officers through in a liaison role to the 7th Fleet. So it's it's keeping that link between us in an area that we don't operate uh, a great deal of time with ships, although that will change next year with the Carrier Strike Group. Right. Um, And... um, uh, you, you got in touch with me because you heard about our uh, Antarctica project, and um, I, I understand you you might be going down to Antarctica about the same time as us. Yeah, well, I heard about the the Antarctic project um, through scouting, and realised that in the austral summer, so our winter of twenty one twenty two, when when you were due to sail for the Antarctic. Uh, that I would be extremely lucky and that I'm taking up a command role in HMS Protector, um, which also spends a lot of its time working in the Antarctic uh, as the Royal Navy's ice patrol ship. So that there's a very good chance uh, that we will be in the same bit of water at more or less the same time. That's fantastic. So, And a really good link to have, the, the fact you're a Kent Scout as well, and, uh, and we might have a whole load of Kent Scouts down there. So I really appreciate you getting in touch. So that's great, and um, so uh, and what have you previously been down to Antarctica? Yes. Yeah, so although I'm now or next year I will be going uh, back to serve in HMS Protector, I have served in her previously uh, about six years ago now as her operations officer. Right. So I spent three Austral summer seasons, so broadly December through to March, uh, working in and around the Antarctic Peninsula. Oh, wow. And what was that experience like? Uh, absolutely incredible. Um, clearly, at the time, the, the world tourist industry was, was booming, and you see cruise ships down there with people who have paid thousands and thousands to spend a week or two uh, in what is the most incredibly beautiful, pristine landscape uh, and waterways. Um, and I had the privilege of being paid to be there for three or four months at a time. <laughs> oh, I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. It's, it's so not necessarily all. It's not necessarily all good. No, because whilst you experience some of the most incredible, pristine places in the world, you also experience some of the most incredible uh, sea states in the world. Right. So yeah. People have probably heard of the. Uh, the Roaring Fifties and the Screaming Sixties, mm-hmm. um, the Seventies, which I don't think is named, but right. uh, we'll go for the, the stupid Seventies. <laughs> um, and icebreakers are not designed as great sea keepers. Right. Uh, they roll quite heavily. Yeah. So that trip from whether it's South America or the Falkland Islands south, with the wind and sea and everything on one beam, uh, is normally two or three days of, of hanging on tight. Yeah. And how are your sea legs after all these years? Uh, well, I've got 20 years now, mm-hmm. so uh, my sea legs are okay. <laughs> uh, but you still do use the reversionary bed every now and then, which is the floor. Yeah. 
yeah, understood. Because it's just so extreme. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. And uh, tell us more about the wildlife that you've seen when you're down there. Well, the wildlife is one of the things that really struck me the first time I went down to the Antarctic. Uh, and the sheer fact that on any given day, at any moment, looking out of the bridge, um, I found that I was almost certain to be looking at something in the Bay of Marine life, whether that's dolphins, whales, and whales form quite a large proportion of that because uh -huh. you can see their spouts from a great distance. Um, but once you get in and around the islands and the land, then you've got seals, penguins, uh, and everything else that's, uh, that's there in abundance. Wow. You can smell the penguins before you can see them. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> Everyone that goes to Antarctica mentions that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, what's a, what's a typical day like down there for you? So, Or is there such a thing as a typical day? I mean, I, I know there's a lot, always a lot of routine around ship life. I don't think there is really such a thing as a typical day. It depends very much on, on what you're doing, whether you are visiting one of the Antarctic stations, trying to land scientists, or conducting uh, hydrographic surveys. Right. Probably the one thing that, for me, typifies the Antarctic is that when the weather is good, you take your opportunity and you press on with what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, because you never know when it will change. Uh, but, of course, it's permanently light during the summer. Ah. Uh, and certainly been a couple of occasions where I've found myself thinking, right, it must be about six or seven o'clock in the evening now. and We probably need to, to slow down and have a bit of a rest. Looked at my watch and found it was two or three o'clock in the morning. So you just completely lose all sense of uh, of the daytime. Yeah. You can do, yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, how many people have you got on board, a, a typical crew? Um, so, well, six years ago, it was about 60 or 70 at a time. The total crew is about 100. It's split into three. Mm -hmm. So two-thirds of that will be on board at any one time. Right. And uh, who, I mean, is, is it MOD issuing the orders? Who's issuing the orders? Or is it? Well, what, determining what protector gets up to? Well, yeah. It's, it's so... a naval vessel. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, the, the chain of command comes through the Royal Navy. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, a lot of a lot of what the ship does uh, in the Antarctic is there's not a lot of naval activity. A lot of it is uh, Foreign Commonwealth Office, Antarctic. Um, what do they call the the Polar Regions Unit? Right. Uh, and the sort of political side of life. Okay. It's representation. No, we, we, we have a, a British Antarctic Territory and you know, we have obligations to, to represent ourselves uh, and to meet down there as well. Right. So you can get involved in all manner of different sort of missions or, or objectives? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, there are, most people who have looked into this at all will be well aware that there are tens of, of, of stations down there, mostly research stations. Yeah. Um, that we will... The protector frequently visits. Okay. Um, but she's also a very capable survey vessel, and so you know, part of our obligation, uh, or meeting our obligation, is to provide uh, nautical charts and charting data for, for that okay. part of the world. Fantastic! That's amazing, Tom. Cool. And um, 
we what we'll what we'll have to do is uh, link up with uh, li link up with uh, First St Peter's, and um, may maybe get get a Antarctic pack to them as well, so so that you can uh, run some sessions with them. Yeah, yeah. So that that'd, that'd be really be, good. Yeah. yeah, cool. Oh, thanks ever so much for making contact. It's great. It's, uh, all these little bits come out of the project, and it it sort of goes off in different directions. Okay, oh, yes. all the best for now, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, all the best. <laughs> Cheers. So next up is the interview that I did with Camilla Nicol, Chief Executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Here we go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with the very open question. Tell us a bit about yourself. So, sure. Uh, I'm Camilla Nicol. I'm the chief executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, um, and uh, I have a great privilege of looking after historic huts and sites in Antarctica. Um, so I've, uh, my background is heritage and museums. So I've um, I started out as a geologist originally, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, and haven't looked back really. I've, I thoroughly enjoy being a geologist. Uh, did, did a bit of polar science when I was at university in Edinburgh, which mm -hmm. is great. And uh, and uh, that just built on my interest for really, for the polar regions. Um, yeah, as I think probably you too. You know, grew up reading about Shackleton, Scott, and uh -huh. all of that when you were the Ladybird books and all that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just sort of built my uh, interest from there really. So um, so I've had a career in museums, looking after um, geology. Mm -hmm. collections um, mm -hmm. sometimes. Uh, I also looked after uh, gems and uh, I've worked in the museum of the, the, the uh, Scottish shale oil industry. Right. One of my very first Scottish football museum. Yeah. And uh, and then into uh, into a keeper of geology in York and then I went to Leeds and stepped into management there and I was responsible for a big team of curators and conservators mm -hmm. and uh, nine sites, nine historic sites and oh, wow. museums and galleries. I saw, uh, is it Hunterian? I didn't know what that one was. What was the Hunterian? Hunterian, yeah, that's in, yeah, the Hunterian Museum's a museum in Glasgow. Uh, okay. By the um, and that was my first proper grown-up job. And <laughs> and that was, it was there, I um, looked after all kinds of things. I looked after geology, I developed an interest in uh, gemology, and mm -hmm. so looking after gems and things. Um, and also, um, most interesting, uh, I did a kind of year looking after anatomy and pathology, so it's just uh, body parts in pickle, pickle body parts. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> fascinating, absolutely fascinating. These are 18th century body parts. Oh wow. Uh, in jobs. So they're injected with mercury and all kinds of nasties, but uh, yeah. absolutely fascinating. Because really I, I, remember, I remember going to visit a very sort of, uh, well, no other word for it, but horrific exhibition in, in Chicago. And it must have been travelling, and it where they'd sliced a body one way and sliced the uh, body the other, yes. and it was was it in formalde formaldehyde or wherever they stood, yeah, and they yeah, yeah. I remember going to yes, that in in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, the waking interest in that kind of thing as well. So, um, so I've got a really broad career, really, lots of different things. So, I think give me a good grounding for understanding. What people find interesting, I think, because mm -hmm. they find interest in all kinds of things, mm. um, which is extraordinary. And I think that's that's something we said really. Um, and I'm interested in all sorts of things as well. So it's a, it, it's been an interesting sort of 25 years so far. Okay. Um, and then we brought, me, <laughs> brought me to Cambridge and brought me to the UK Antarctic Ocean Trust, which 
just fantastic. It's a heritage. It's Antarctica. Mm. It's uh, being the boss. Uh, and uh, yeah, I work with a great team. They're working with partnership across organisations, and and occasionally I get to go south as well, which is oh wow, tremendous. well yeah, that's the that's the icing on the cake. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, so it was Edinburgh, and then and then you went on to Leicester as well. Is that right? I've read that on the yeah. website. That's right. Yeah. So postgrad in museum studies. So okay. I knew, uh, I decided when I was doing my geology, a lot of my peers were going off to work in the oil industry and mineral exploration. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. That, I didn't feel that was for me. I mean, I'm interested in travel, but sort of uh, mineral exploration and exploitation wasn't really my bag. Um, so, and I got really interested in communicating. So, you know, I was fascinated by the history of the earth and stories of geology and landscape and reading the landscape that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But also taking a specimen and being able to read that and say, you know, this is a fossil or it's a particular type of rock and being able to infer its history from its, its composition. So that kind of narrative, that kind of storytelling, that kind of science education, if you like, was something that really inspired me, I think. Mm-hmm. So I thought, so where could I do that? Um, and then um, always been a big museum go and I thought, actually, I can really fancy working in museums so I decided at uni that so that's what I wanted to do had a look about see what you needed to do and in those days right. it was good to get the postgrad in museum studies so you get the, I, did, I didn't even know such a thing existed until I saw your <laughs> on your on your wikipedia yeah but I took a year out to work in uh, to get some volunteer experience working in museums so I stayed mm-hmm. in Glasgow Worked in the Ontario and the Kelvin Grove Museums and just yeah. got a feel for collections and how a museum works. So, yeah, went on from there. I mean, these days, okay. actually, um, experience is just as, as important, actually, or mm. just a really strong knowledge. So, yeah. you know, there are a lot the of actual practical. Courses, but mm. you have to do them to get to museums and heritage. So, so it's an interesting, really interesting area of life to work in, I think. So you must have seen some dramatic changes in the way that museums are you know, run and presented and so... Oh, for sure. Mm. For sure. I mean, uh, at long last, the Hessian back- backgrounds are being phased out. But, <laughs> yeah, slowly, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, I mean, there's been interesting. I think, and I think how museums now include their audiences in their, in their interpretation, I think, mm. really, has really now just elevated museums and the experience to, to much... To great heights. Yes. Like, whereas previously, it was about you go to the museum to learn stuff and it was... Things in rows, in mm-hmm. or taxonomy, and you would learn every Latin name. Yeah. Um, there's still, I think there's still a place for that, and I still do uh, get a thrill when I do see a museum like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes minerals all lined up. But now, you know, just uh, including your audience in, in the narratives, in the interpretation about what, what things mean to people, mm-hmm. it actually is really powerful. I think um, what, you know, how we reinterpret collections um, and how they collect and who buy and what they mm. tell us and what the form might be and all of that sort of thing it can be really interesting and, and personal stories about collections. So, Definitely. You know, grandfather collected fossils can, can release, reveal some really lovely stories. Mm. So I think that's, that's been something, that kind of inclusion um, of the of, of voices into, into narratives, I think it's been really a really welcome um, mm. revolution. I, re- I, re- I recently went to the Horniman Museum down in, uh, outside of London, and I remember going there as a small child, and uh, going back now, I could see that it was it was going through a major sort of identity crisis it was half half of it is so traditional um and so they've got these traditional collections and so on and yet it was trying to at the same time 
you know, engage a younger audience and keep up with the times. And you could you could see this struggle that was going on almost. I just, you know, I was just wandering around. And it, it, it sort of had an... I, I felt it had a bit of an identity crisis, you know, because it had to, trying to stay relevant um, and yet maintain its heritage. You know, it was it was hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there is that... Um, and I think, I think you're right, I think over the last sort of 10 maybe 20 years, there was a kind of a big shift saying we were now going to make it all interactive mm. and um, in the age of six and all this kind of thing. We actually, actually turned off a lot of people mm. from museums. They mm. were just, just playground. But now I think it, we're a bit more sophisticated with it. Yes. We can tell stories differently. Um, interactivity can be for all ages, <laughs> um, but if, if you're it's helping you understand or learn something, then that's that's great, rather than just making noises or drawing things on for the sake of it. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's... I think it's a place for that kind of tradition, but I think it's moving away from the kind of didactic museum that yeah. we know we are museum. The sort of diorama, no. dioramas or whatever. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These kind of false dinosaurs and things. But as our knowledge changes, I mean, look at dinosaurs. I mean, in my lifetime, I was, you know, I wanted to, was inspired by museums, you know, age nine when I first mm. went to the Natural History Museum. Stood yeah. under Dickie the Dinosaur. Yeah. And of course, Dickie the Dinosaur was presented head up, tail down. No, yes. we now know. Yes. The dinosaurs. It would never have been that way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The knowledge changes and the presentation changes. And he's now, he's now, tra- he now turned yeah, into a whale, I think, apparently at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has indeed. Yeah, so things change. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think how we use museum collections and, and stories to understand our world better and the past, I think how we revisit collections, mm. for example, using scientific collections for climate change mm. studies now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, revisiting, now we know that with good data and tell you all sorts about the environment and yeah. environment and all kind of things. You've got these records of, of the past which yeah. have been hitherto unmapped. So, you know, the great great resource. I'm a great champion of museums and great. and heritage and, and drawing the past to to understand our future yeah. we've got a we've got a big uh, event that the um, young people that are going to antarctica are running this this weekend uh, it's called Cl- climate quest um and yeah. so they're trying to engage some of the younger ones the beavers and the cubs and the, the and and teach them about it, the climate change issues and so on so it's going to be an interesting event this weekend quite looking forward to that yeah so uh, um, one one of the young people's heading it up, you know. So this is this is uh, where I had an idea eight, seven years ago, and it's so nice for me from it to go from a, like a tiny little seed of an idea of going back to Antarctica a hundred years later and celebrating the link with the scouts, and now all of a sudden the project is becoming more than my original idea, which is great for me, you know. So it's spinning off in lots of different ways. And, uh, you know, you get to a point where an idea becomes reality and you've just got to let go a little bit, you know, and, and just enjoy where it goes, you know. So, yes, yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah. God knows what I've started. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. Um, so I saw that you'd, you'd written a paper on uh, climate change or something. So what was that about? That was in a... In a, a I, obviously, it looked really expensive, one hundred and twenty-five pounds or something. Um, climate, <laughs> <laughs> the handbook of climate change. <laughs> you're it. You're in. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, a few years ago, I was invited to a country to a conference that was about um, how 
uh, heritage particularly can contribute to our understanding of climate change. So mm-hmm. um, I went at it looking at it from a kind of, well, I look after heritage in a very remote place that mm-hmm. you know, a certain demographic of people are able to visit. So it's uh, wealthy people, old, slightly, maybe slightly older people, mm-hmm. but a very narrow sector of society, mm. but yet a very powerful uh, sector of society, you know, influential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they've got money influence they may come uh, positions of power um in in industry and what have you so it's an audience that you've got captive that rock say mm. uh where you actually tell a tell a story about the climate so you're then in an environment which is not only tells us about the climate mm. a lot you know, a great deal but also is impacted heavily by what we you know the decisions and actions we take here mm-hmm. um so they're immersed in this environment and port lockroy and other historic sites are opportunities to kind of interpret that a bit more tell mm-hmm. the story a bit more look at what um climate change is but using the heritage to do that so i think i think i feel very strongly that you know tempi science tells us an awful lot about climate mm-hmm. um it's a it's a it's often in the news you know people are kind of much more um articulate around climate science these days whether they believe in it or not but um I think, I think, there are still right. still non-believers out oh, there yes fight the good fight don't we um but i think heritage has a unique voice in that so, you know mm. we Heritage I look after, mm. I can trace back the origins of the science. Mm. So, you know, mm. that's probably 1940 is the birthplace of the British Antarctic Survey. Of course, and some yeah. of the data collected there, foundations of the data that's used now to understand yeah. our world. Taking being able to take that long view, that different perspective, just appeals to different people in different ways. So, mm. not everyone's turned on by science. Not, you know, mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. understand that, of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> but history is another way of getting to people yeah. to help yeah. people understand. Um, these big issues, that, you know, the big issues of the day. So mm. let's give that perspective. Let's give that history. Let's let's tell some human stories around that as well. Absolutely, it's, um, and it's it it's one of the key objectives of our project as well. So it it all links up. So yeah, we we, we yeah. really want to you know continue that that his, historical link and and how it sort of how these things all linked up. You know, so and 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 James Marr uh, is great for us because obviously he was involved in the setup of Port Lockroy um and uh, you know went back later after after his, he went as a scout um and then that all links up with british antarctic survey and everything so it everything interlinks really well so and uh, one of our one of our young people is um is also a he's a youth ambassador for the rgs which is really good as well so he goes out into schools trying to inspire um uh, schools about you know geography and the links and and so on so yeah hopefully it all links up <laughs> it all makes sense right um so i've got a, a few other questions i, I, I you know so uh, what did your parents do you, you know where, where where were you born and where did you grow up sort of thing sure yeah, uh, yeah. i was born in hastings on the south oh, okay yeah. yeah not far along the coast yeah <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, but all my family from cumbria Oh, um, right. Which, uh, I've got uh, good, good Cumbrian blood in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad is a, bot- is a botanist. Um, oh, okay. He, he spent his career in education, ad- adult education, largely he worked in colleges um, as a botany lecturer and later in adult education. So he did that. And my mum, um, she was uh, worked as a lab technician in a school, sort of chemistry. Oh, okay. Um, right. but she, she became ill with MS um, when not oh. long after me and my sister were born. So okay. she had to she had, eventually had to give up work. Um, right. But um, yeah, but she, so quite a sciencey household we had. Um, <laughs> I was going to say it's very sciencey background. Yeah. 
<laughs> very curious about the natural world. Mm. So we, you know, um, you know, spent holidays on beaches and that kind of thing, and uh, looking woods and identifying <laughs> trees and uh-huh. all that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, and uh, in the funny, exciting, very scientific room, my sister took an artistic route, a creative route. All right. Um, so she's an artist. So we've got a yeah, so quite a quite a, 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 an outdoor upbringing, really. So Did you go to school in Hastings as well, or? Yes, well, yeah. I lived there until I was about nine, yeah. and then we moved up to Woodlands, up to Nottinghamshire. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, some of my earliest memories are just fosking on the beach. The best playground ever isn't being on the beach. Yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah. I grew up in Deal, so same idea. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it was, it was a bit of a shock system moving inland, so we moved to Nottinghamshire, which is landlocked, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and there's a very different a different kind of different life, really, but mm. it was still outdoors uh, that big connection so uh what what would you say was your earliest memory can you can you re- have an earliest memory it's hard to pinpoint really isn't it since yeah. it's trying to go now yeah. but I, I probably would say being on the beach i think it's it was okay. looking for pebbles on the beach too you know, i think john yeah. was i think there from the earliest days and i think you know whether you know, my grandparents would come down to visit us. We'd always they'd take us to the beach for picnics, and everyone gets soaking wet, and uh, would come back with pockets with pebbles and sea glass and <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. But I think those are those are the memories. So beach beach combing and rock pools and yeah, yeah, lovely. Oh well, that that <laughs> stuck with you for life. That one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right, so this is this is our special question, which is unique to our interviews, uh, which is uh, if you could go back in time and you could actually meet with Sir Ernest Shackleton, uh, what what would you like to ask him? Very many questions, but uh, yeah, I was thinking about this. Actually, I think uh, one interesting thing about him is his his leadership and his kind of bookless and um, drive. You know, he was convinced he was going to save his men on the endurance expedition. Mm-hmm. You know, absolute calamity, and yet he said, "I am going to get all these men home." Yeah. And uh, I suppose one of my questions it would be: Is did you ever doubt? Did you ever doubt that was going to work? Because mm-hmm. you know, at every turn you were thwarted, and you overcame every hurdle. And yeah. it, it was you know, <laughs> it was a shame. It was the loss of the yeah. first camp. Yeah, it was getting there's the so many moment. points where he could yeah. have doubted. Yeah, did you ever have that self doubt, and how did that feel? Because okay. I think you know he's held up, and you know we all admire him, mm. his leadership mm. and his confidence, mm. and his resolution. But uh, there must have been some niggling doubts there. And I'd Absolutely, love to that and just, just, just you, know, are you were you human too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, he almost, yeah, he almost want to, want to be reaffirmed that he had those doubts, really, because <laughs> it must have been, yes, yeah. Yes. So uh, yeah, well, he must have done. He must yeah, have of course. He of course. Never write them down for publication, mm, of course. Mm. So he, he was not nearly write them in his diary, but mm. but yeah, there must have been there. And how mm. how did he overcome them? I suppose mm. what in the dark, in the dark wee hours, how did he turn those doubts into? great decisions yeah absolutely and that i think that's you know and that that tends to be the key message that comes out of the endurance story isn't it this this sort of absolutely i am going to save them no matter what and and the fact that his whole focus for the project changed you know Mm -hmm. went from trying to achieve the original objectives to 
to uh, having a new objective and that that yeah. i think was a yeah a major lesson from that so Absolutely. yeah okay Absolutely. Yeah. right yeah. so we get we get to unbelievable truth now this is uh, is there anything that you can share with us that we think uh, oh wow um so is there anything that might surprise us could be somebody strange you've met or something odd that you've done or well, I was thinking about that. Yes, well, well, a few years ago, mm-hmm. I did um, enter and come third in the British World Padding Championship. Sorry, though, could you repeat that? <laughs> British... <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know, totally. So, uh, yeah, a few years ago, um, I was uh, camping in Scotland, um, interested in geology, obviously, uh-huh. and we went, we, we pitched up to One Lock Head, which is in the southern uplands in Dumfrieshire. And uh, and going on there was the British Gold Panning Championships. Gold Panning! Oh my god! And my friend Stuart said, "Well, come on, let's go." Because we've both been doing. He's been studying gold as a, he was doing a master's in geochemistry, and uh, I've been practicing gold panning um, in my job actually. <laughs> so let's enter. He came first. I came third. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a great smoke, honestly. And this is the World Gold Panning Championships or British, the British, British yeah. the British Gold British. Panning Championships. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't even know there was involves, such a thing. <laughs> I don't know who you exactly. involved standing sort of uh, sort of thigh deep in muddy water in a in water in a dumpy bag. Okay. Muddy water that a load of sediment had been chucked into, and then um, half a dozen specks of gold. Okay. My my friend my friend coming second in the World Conquer Championships just doesn't sound the same now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a great one. Thank you for sharing that. So, um, okay, now it, it, food. So emergency rations. Um, I I know you've been to Antarctica. So, is, is there a sort of food that you like to have with you or have when you're there? That sort of comfort food or something that uh, is a nice to always have about. Yeah, well, I mean, we uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to feed our team when they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we buy lots of things like tinned food, fried mentos pies, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, the, the tradition. Um, <laughs> but and our team are lucky because they do get supplied with, um, and when I was there, you know, we get supplied with fresh food off the chips that visit. Yeah. They bring bread yeah. and, and cheese and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But one thing we can never get are fresh eggs. Oh, eggs. Oh. Yeah, fresh eggs. Because, I mean, okay. there's, a bit of bio, there's a bit of a biohazard, fresh eggs. Right. Because we live, because Lockwood is a penguin colony. Yeah. So we can't, we can't bring eggs in because they may come with viruses or... or okay. So we don't, there's no fresh eggs on Port Lockwood. Okay. Um, I'm quite a keen chicken keeper, actually, hen keeper. Okay. Um, uh, I like nothing better than my fresh eggs. From but you've not been able to take any with you. <laughs> <laughs> so if it were possible, that's what I would say. Okay, right. No, that's nice. Yeah. And it it's nice to sort of, you know, if you're down there for a long period of time, you become aware of these things. Don't you? It's like in your normal everyday life, you don't realise. And then it sort of suddenly becomes important. So you think, oh, yeah. And that first omelette when you get home is very special, you know. So. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and do you have a, a special item you like to take with you when you're travelling or a, a keepsake or anything? Well, well I, don't, I have actually, I've done this actually. The, mm-hmm. first, the very first time I went to Antarctica, I went to the Ross Sea. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was a guest yeah. in New Zealand. 
and visited Scott and Shackleton's huts there. Oh, don't, um, don't, then, I'm jealous already. Okay. Oh, maybe. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to happen uh, one day. <laughs> yeah, and just, just being able to camp outside Cape Evans at the foot of Mount Erebus was just a life-changing moment, really. Oh, wow. But one of the things I did there, and I did the same again when I went to South Georgia for the first time, is I took my copy, my well-thumbed copies of, of Shackleton and Scott's books. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Scott's diaries, uh, diaries, and I took copies of South and uh, Heart mm-hmm. of the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. The Great. And I just put them with me. When I went into Scott's hut and Shackleton's hut, I took them in there with me. And when I went to South Georgia, I went to Gripiken and to Shackleton's grave. Mm-hmm. Um, I took the, I took that book with me. Oh, that's that's music to my ears. I, I'm a big book lover, so yeah, that yeah. that's and lovely. It was stamped by in the museum, and it just it just makes that book those books now so precious and special. Mm. And uh, it was lovely, lovely to have those words with me, so I could read yes, yeah, the yeah. words from the days in the relevant dates that I was there. We date, you know, things going on those dates. So. Mm-hmm. I can feel a real connection, and that that's um, nice. for me, whenever I have shows, I do like to take books, mm. or find books that are when I'm going. And I can read yeah, I do, I, I do the same. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so you yeah. know, that's that's whenever mm. I go, I try to take something. So I've, t- I've took um, uh, uh, Ivan Mackenzie Lamb's book, uh-huh. uh, The Secrets. Last time I went to Lock Roy, yeah. Had that pack, um, that kind of, so I try to do that whenever I go. So Lovely, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. And 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 just your thoughts about Antarctica. I mean, the, you know, for for you, why is it such a special place? And and you know, what what do you think it means to people? So, yeah, I mean, Antarctica is it's, it's many things, isn't it? I think mm. Antarctica is a kind of mythical place, isn't it? It's mm. kind of a place that most people will never visit. You know, yeah. the idea of it is so enthralling and enticing, isn't it? Mm. And you learn about it from a, as a kid, isn't mm. it? From a young age, you know, the heroic stories. And so for many people, um, in in this job, I talk to people a lot about Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And nobody I've ever met has gone, oh, no, I'm not interested in that boring. That's it, that's and it. Felicity, Felicity so Aston <laughs> said the same to me. She said, no one okay. ever no one ever goes to, comes back from Antarctica and goes, oh, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, perfect. 
so yeah so we got the badges have sold all over the world our little penguin badges we've we send them to australia and new zealand and yeah they've been really really popular so yeah so i i i sort of uh not having been to antarctica myself i feel i've been there in my head a million times but uh you know i've still got that absolute sort of super excitement of a kid about going next year so i'm i'm very very excited about it i'm just hoping it all comes off uh with uh, the state the state of the world at the moment the uh the the bark europa had to make its way back to europe and uh, won't be going this season so but i'm hoping everything's back to normal by next season so yeah we, we so do hope, I. yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, we're, we're the same. We don't yet know whether we'll head south this Understood. season. Understood, um, yeah. Ever so hard. So we're all hoping for 21 22 that things will be more mm. normal. And uh, mm. we really look forward to welcoming you to Port Lockroy. I hope so, goodness. yes. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks for listening. To find out more about the Request 2021 project and how you can support and follow our progress, just visit our website on www.request2021.org.uk. That's www.request2021.org.uk. And uh, please give this podcast a review, share it, and uh, and spread the word to anyone you know who's interested in Antarctica. Thank you.